Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richmond. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Brooke Blevins, the Conwell G. Strickland Endowed Chair, Associate Professor, and Chair of the, the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Baylor University's School of Education. In 2017, Dr. Blevins was selected as a Baylor Fellow, a cohort of Baylor teachers recognized for excellence and stimulated for experimenting in their classrooms. She was also the Senior Fellow for the program in 2018. Dr. Blevins teaches both undergraduate and graduate courses in secondary education, social studies education, and multicultural education. We are delighted to have Dr. Blevins on the show to discuss infusing virtues in your classes, how civic education relates to politics, the differences between high school and college learners, and much more. Brooke Blevins, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. Glad to be here. You, I want to start by asking you about your experience with our Baylor Fellows Program. This is a teaching cohort program that we operate and, and facilitate every year. And you were both a fellow in, I think, 2017-18, and then the following year you were our senior fellow, so helping with kind of the oversight of that. So that program, for anyone who doesn't know, is really focused on on encouraging faculty who have already been recognized as excellent teachers to dig a little deeper and try something new and experiment. So do you recall what you did? What was your experiment or maybe some of your colleagues work too? Yeah. So that year we were focused in particularly around Christian virtue in the classroom and thinking about how we model Christian character in our in our classroom environments. And so it was fun exercise because teaching obviously is my First love, it's what I've done most of my life, uh, and I enjoy it. But this was an opportunity to think about it in a, in a different way. So obviously the integration of faith and learning is huge here at Baylor and something that I've thought about, but perhaps hadn't been as explicit with my students. So I tackled a couple of key virtues in two different classes. One class uh, was with undergrads, one was with graduate students. My undergrad class, we tackled the virtues of wisdom, courage, and hope. And particularly, these were interns who were senior level students working out in the field and teaching in, a, in various environments. And so we worked together to think through how they could demonstrate wisdom, courage, and hope in the work they do. Those were really central. And uh, so they did some reflective work on that. They wrote a, a pedagogic creed at the beginning of the semester, and then they revisited that throughout the semester. And at the end, we talked about how elements of wisdom and courage and hope played out in that. So that was a fun project. And then my graduate course, we were working on a project called Bridging the Cultural Divide. It was in a course called Issues and Diversity. And our students, my focus in those, that course was around uh, courage, hope, and justice. And so in that project, our students worked to interview somebody from a different identity group, so who, who had a characteristic maybe different than them, 
and think about how those virtues played out in that process, but also in the conversation, how that informed uh, the person they were interviewing, how that informed their life too. So it was fun. And it was great to just visit with so many other exceptional colleagues around campus who are doing great work and to hear how they were already incorporating some of this in their classes and then trying new things. And uh, most of them found great success. It wasn't oh, complete overhauls of courses, but it was this infusion of a conversation that sometimes is uh, implicit at Baylor, but maybe not always as ac- explicit. And so it was fun to have explicit conversations around those virtues. Has, has that carried on in any of your classes in any real intentional ways? Or has, has it just been more, like you say, kind of like an infusion that's implicit now that you've done that work? Yeah, I mean, I would say there are still moments. Um, I don't teach the same classes now, so it's a little different in terms of that. It still plays out in the work that I do in that that graduate level course, because that's a course I still teach. I would say for sure it is um, much more implicit in the work. Um, it was implicit, but perhaps I think about those conversations and those questions more often. Implicit for the students yes. and less so for you Exactly, now. Okay, exactly. Yeah. Certainly more explicit in my own thinking, mm-hmm. but but I think it, it is still an undercurrent that runs throughout the courses. What's the I most teach. challenging part of that? Uh, I mean, we do have the, the Christian environment here, which makes that, you know, sets that kind of uh, culture already. But I assume that there's still other difficulties in or challenges in, in bringing Things, something like virtues into your classes when maybe some students are like, no, I'm just here to like learn the, the book stuff. Did they have any resistance to that or? You know, I think I didn't encounter a lot of resistance, frankly. And I don't know if that's because of the nature of the courses I was teaching. I think I was nervous because I thought not of all of my students share the same faith background that I do, right? right. Like, mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter because these virtues were more about my interactions with them and our interactions with one another. And I think these virtues transcend uh, particular religious uh, affiliations, right? These are virtues that we can demonstrate for humanity and for what Freire would call us like humanizing education, this Mm -hmm. act of humanizing the work of of the students that we're engaged with. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't encounter a lot of pushback, which I I think is – indicative of our students too and yeah. they're, they're being open to these conversations uh, as well so that was fun but you mentioned vir- uh, the virtue of justice as one of the ones that you had targeted and so that provides maybe a good bridge to the next question here you know one of your main areas of teaching and research is in civics education specifically you know you're teaching future secondary school teachers how to do this so how do you conceptualize civics education yeah, I, I, my view of civic education is is pretty simplistic. It's about educating young people to be active and engaged citizens in their communities. So I think about civic education not just in sort of a legal sense in terms of students vote and they, uh, you know, they serve on juries and those kinds of things that wait to happen until they're 18. So mm-hmm. that kind of legal definition of I am a U.S. citizen because I was born in this country or I've been naturalized and my responsibilities begin at 18 – And they are these kind of very formulaic. I see civic education as about helping all people. I'm particularly interested in young people and their teachers develop dispositions, skills, and certainly knowledge to engage in their communities um, in really productive ways. So young people don't have to wait till they're 18 
to be citizens in their community. Being a citizen means helping one's neighbor. It means working together to solve problems. It means having deliberative discussion across difference where we can listen to one another and hear those differences and work together to strategize or agree to disagree in some instances, but still demonstrate many of these virtues that we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Justice, uh, courage, wisdom, those qualities that I think are so important in cultivating communities that are prosperous and that are that are engaged in justice work as well. As I think about it, civics involves politics, but it's certainly not reduced to politics. So how do you help students kind of disentangle those or think think productively about the relationship between those two things? Yes. Well, it's increasingly more difficult uh -huh. right now, right? Like I think um, on both sides uh, of, if we were to think about political parties, both ends of the spectrum believe that civic education is important to some degree, whether they actually, we actually see this happening in schools, but for different aims, right? Mm -hmm. So what are those aims? So I would say education is always political. It's, we would be remiss to believe that it was an apolitical act. There are decision makers who are deciding what we're teaching and how we're teaching it and those sorts of things. Um, most recently, our Texas legislature has passed two, a House Bill 3979 and a Senate Bill 3, that have significant implications for the teaching of civics. Um, and they're very curious bills, frankly. I was spending a little bit of time in Senate Bill 3. I've done a lot of work on 3979. But they call both for civic education, and yet there are deep restrictions on what that looks like in schools. So uh -huh. we can't talk about controversial issues. We can't engage in public and social policy advocacy. We can't actually uh, work with, have direct communication with our local, state, and federal representatives to engage in change. You can't engage in service learning. This is where we are in Texas. And so what I would say is I am working with my students to understand that. So wow. with our pre-service teachers to say, what what does this mean? Mm -hmm. uh, what does this mean for what you can do in your classrooms and can't do in your classrooms? Um, but how do we think about uh, civics education in, in a in a time when it's under attack in some ways. It's wanted, but yet what that focus look like, looks like is certainly uh, deeply contested. So did I hear you right that they are banning uh, service learning? Correct. That seems bonkers <laughs> to me. Yeah, it does seem bonkers. I mean, our work is around action civics, which has deep roots in service learning, which is this process of engaging and looking at your community uh, studying your community, looking mm -hmm. at what are the issues in your community, really delving deep into one focus issue that you're going to target, yeah. uh, looking at the root causes of that issue, and then investigating how to solve that by working with other folks in the community, by thinking about how might we engage policymakers, how might we engage grassroots organizations to to create lasting and sustainable change. And we do this process and they reflect on that process. And I'm talking specifically about the work I do with a program called I Engage. This is what it's based in. Mm -hmm. And yes, so that notion of engaging in that process of action civics or service learning is under fire um, because it's seen as a political act. When I would argue it's this the opportunity to engage in one's community like that is a civic act. It's not, it's not partisan. Yeah. 
this is what we need to do in order to create change in our communities. And what's disconcerting about that too is it cuts, uh, it, it works against good pedagogy too, because Absolutely. if we want students to, to truly care about things, which really helps with their learning yeah, if they care sure about does. it, <laughs> then, you know, getting, getting their hands dirty as it were is, you know, a really useful way to do that. And so, uh, yeah, I, I share your concern here that, uh, that some of this will just sort of seem like um, just dry textbook kinds of stuff if, if there's not opportunities to, to become involved in community work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've seen that there's been a lot of research about uh, civic education not simply being sort of what we think of in traditional terms as you have this one semester high school government class where you're learning about the process of government and how things work, which is important. Let me also preface that. Knowledge about how systems and processes work is very important, particularly as you try to navigate those systems or even change those systems. Mm -hmm. But what we know from the research is the act of helping young people engage as citizens, both now and in the future, is highly related to their ability to practice those skills through simulations and through activities as a young person. So they develop these skills and dispositions by doing and behaving as citizens as a young person so that they carry that on, not just by simply reading out of a textbook. So it's troubling to know that there are, being, there are restrictions being placed on what we can do with young people in the classroom. And we know, you know, inquiry pedagogy is huge, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the, from scientific inquiry to historical inquiry to civic inquiry, these are all ways that we can help folks, like you said, get their hands dirty, understand mm -hmm. the process, uh, and be able to replicate that as they move forward in their lives. So as a teacher of college students who are future teachers in uh, K-12, secondary schools especially, how, how do you help them sort of navigate those tensions or make the necessary peace with the system too that they might need to just do their work from day to day you know um we we walk through policy we look at historical policy to say that this isn't new right we've seen this mm -hmm. pendulum swing over time and what we know from the stories of great teachers is they've prevailed despite all of these many pendulum swings in policy and at the end of the day, I tell my students, you close your door and you do what you know to be best for your students. And we teach them those skills. We give them the skills of how do you engage your students in inquiry? How do you have them look at multiple perspectives and look at primary source documents and distinguish between fact and opinion? How do you help them also anchor that in knowledge of history and in geography and so forth? So, but I tell my students at the end of the day, you have agency in this. Right. You get to make decisions. Now, certainly there are implications for those decisions, but you do what is best for your students. So I want to think a little bit more on the practical level here. As someone who has taught both high school and college students, for you, what are, what are the important similarities or differences among these different groups of students? Well, I, I, there's not a ton of difference. That's the beauty is um, learners are similar, right? And I do a lot of work now in middle school too. So I see middle school students, I mm -hmm. taught high school for a long time, and then work with both undergrads and grads. And there are similarities. I would argue that college students, our traditional models of teaching in college um, 
are okay, but some of the innovative things that we're doing in middle and high school are ones that college students would benefit from too. So active, hands-on learning, opportunities to engage in simulations, opportunities for inquiry, and really exploration of, of issues that are of interest to them. I think all students, all learners need various scaffolds and opportunities for the instructor to to give gradual release of control. So we do some scaffolding, we do some modeling, but we step back and then we allow our students to demonstrate their newly formed skills or knowledge in the classroom. So um, certainly developmentally where they are in their thinking and those kinds of things is different as you move from middle to high school. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, oftentimes it's said that elementary or middle school students can't handle these kind of courageous conversations or dangerous conversations. And I would push back against that to say that we can begin those. And I think the earlier we begin helping our our young people engage in deliberative dialogue and thinking across difference, the better prepared they are to come into a college setting where in in large part, that's an expectation. Right. So um, some of the things I do with my middle school and high school students, I do with my college students and vice versa. Right. I don't see that I put on a different hat to teach each of these different kinds Mm -hmm. of learners. And yet there's, there's often, as you say, such a difference between what the learning, what the typical learning experience is in, you know, say high school versus when they come to college, you know, thinking especially about like the large lecture hall kind of experience. I had, I had a small enough class this semester that this was, this was doable. I, I asked all of my students to just meet with me just one-on-one just to get to know you. And I found myself saying to them as I was learning about their transition, because these are all freshmen and it was like first, second week of, of class. I found myself saying to them one version or another of, man, there's a lot that has changed for you in, you know, in a two-week time span, you know, where everything from like your sleeping conditions and your eating habits to your friend group to the contact with your family and support network to now the, the, the educational stuff. And the educational stuff is not just college is harder and it's more complex, but now we're actually also asking you to learn in sometimes completely new ways that they're unprepared for sitting in a large lecture hall where they're just supposed to be taking a bunch of notes and it just it it, it it just really came home to me how different we sometimes think of of a freshman an 18 year old freshman and an 18 year old high school s- senior and that just doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem the best way to handle this yeah i mean you're right it's, it's what happens over 2 weeks from the time you leave <laughs> From the time you leave the throes of your home to Mm -hmm. come to the university, we suddenly think you've matured and developed totally different skills. Right. You know, I think it's interesting because, and and I'm not sure what I make of it yet, but obviously we're seeing a a push for college prep uh, opportunities in high schools. So we're seeing a lot of this pushback into high schools where we're sort of modeling high school classrooms after college classrooms. And I don't know that that's the best way to do it, right? Uh Like let's, why are we having our students sit through lectures and take notes? Why aren't we using more of what we're seeing in terms of pedagogy that are happening in K-12 schools infused into university settings? And of course the ATL does such a great job of, of helping promote a lot of those conversations. But I do think, um, you know, our, our college learners, there are a lot of skills that I hope they're gaining in K-12 education and some that are that are sort of on the job training for sure. And I think you're right, like just such a transition 
and with little consideration of of what what preparation they have for yeah. that transition. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about this, but uh, there's sort of two two flows here that are going on. One is, as you say, kind of like the college mentality bleed into upper levels of high school with like AP classes and that sort of thing, dual credit courses. And then, but then there's also, as as you are well aware, that when when college teaching innovates, it's usually maybe not usually, but it's oftentimes something that was first sort of discerned and tried in K through 12. So we think like flipped learning came mm-hmm. out of, you know, was it middle school, I right. think, yeah. uh, you know, and then just sort of makes its way up. So it's interesting to think about. It's kind of flowing both ways in conversations that are not connected to each uh, other. You're so right. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a, there's probably some great synergy and research to be done around mm-hmm. that. And some of our faculty are, are thinking about that. And I know some of the folks at the university are as well, but it's certainly an interesting kind of recursive pattern, but yet not a not a purposeful one in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I'm a little envious of someone who teaches about teaching um, because it provides you and your students an opportunity. It seems to me a natural opportunity to reflect on the learning process. And, you know, one of the things that, that we find ourselves saying often to faculty is give your students opportunities to flex the metacognition skills because that's that's just not something that's traditionally part of our disciplines and part of the way we think about pedagogy but it seems to me like it'd be natural for for those conversations to pop up when you're teaching uh, college students about teaching and learning then for to take some time to reflect on how they themselves are learning so what can you talk about what students say what, what revelations they have about their own learning processes yeah, we do. We're heavy on the reflection, particularly in the department that I'm in. Our students do a lot of, of reflection. Our hope is that in modeling it, they're also modeling, they're doing that with their own students yeah. as well. Um, I'm not sure that they don't grow weary of the amount of reflection we make them do, <laughs> but what they do come back and tell us is, thank you for asking those questions. Thank you for always um, having us think about our why and about our rationale for particular choices we make in the teaching and learning and process. Um, and also about how we were growing and learning through this process, because what it does is it sets them up for those thought patterns when they enter their own classroom. Mm -hmm. So teaching is a terribly isolating profession in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways, right? We are just stuck with our kids. Often we might see another teacher in the hallway or at lunch and various things, you know, you can you can feel alone in that. And so this opportunity to reflect and to reflect also in collaborative groups, which is another focus area that we spend time with is how do you develop um, professional learning communities, communities of practice where you are holding one another accountable for this kind of reflection and thinking about how you are engaging in the learning process and in the teaching process is really helpful. So I think our students, when they reflect on the amount of reflection <laughs> that they did in their uh, in their undergraduate education, they're appreciative later. Maybe at the time they're they're thinking, "Gosh, what is this? What is the purpose of this?" Because they're not seeing it modeled across right. the university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I say, I think that's something that other disciplines could could work on and could uh, infuse into their into their courses as well. 
So you teach a course, if I've got this right, Issues in Diversity, and you're also involved in Baylor's most diverse program, the online EDD in learning the educational change. We're recording this on a Friday, which at Baylor is Spirit Day. So I've got my Baylor tie on, and you've got your Baylor EDD online School of Ed shirt on. So can you talk about and describe your experiences with this intersection about teaching about diversity while also working in at what Baylor we consider a very diverse environment? Absolutely. Um, it has been a great learning curve for me. It has been a challenge, um, and I have learned so much in the last three years in teaching in this program and working with the students that are part of that program. So as you said, most diverse program on campus. It is an online program, um, but yet incredibly rigorous. We meet with our students every week, so it's not just asynchronous. We have both uh, asynchronous work, and then we meet each week for about 90 minutes in live session with our students. These folks are working professionals. They are leaders in their organizations, from educational organizations to human, uh, uh, to HR organizations, to business, to healthcare, et cetera. And they are incredibly knowledgeable and they're also doing hard work in their professions. And so it is fun to talk with them about issues in diversity because they're dealing with this each and every day. And for some of them, this is their lived reality as uh, students of color, as uh, religiously diverse students, um, as students who share very different identity markers than perhaps I do or perhaps uh, the, our typical undergraduate population does. So we start our conversation by establishing some kind of rules for conversation and class norms, if you will. And those really guide us as we tackle what uh, sometimes are, are considered controversial conversations or dangerous discourses. So we start with the notion of, of speaking your truth and respecting the opinions of others. And that we want to take a posture to seek to understand in those conversations. So that's the second thing. Third, we want to lean into discomfort. We so often run from discomfort. Uh, and I think we see this happening in sort of the political sphere. Like we, we don't want to be, we just, we don't want to be uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. we lean into discomfort. One of the, the fourth thing is, and I always tell them, I, you've got to expect and accept a lack of closure. I often use the metaphor as, I'm not going to wrap this class session up with a nice red bow. Like There is no solution to these issues, uh, no one solution to these issues, nor are we going to fix it in 90 minutes. So you have to accept and be okay with lack of closure. And then, obviously, being present in these conversations from beginning to end so that we are being respectful of each other's time. So um, it is, I have learned so much, talk, thinking about sort of metacognition and reflection from my students. It, I tell them we are learning right as, alongside each other. I might have a few more years in sort of this formal education about these conversations and I might be introducing theories and concepts that uh, have been written about in academic literature, but what they often tell to me, say to me is, that's been my experience. I've just never had the theoretical construct to name it or known that other people experience it. So that's really fun to interact and help them name and claim their experiences. Can you do a little thought experiment? How do you think the, the, some of that would be different if it were a, a more traditional face-to-face 
setting? Not a lot. I'll just be really honest. I have taught this class on the ground. And when I put it online, I was very apprehensive about how would we create a safe space where these kinds of deep conversations can happen, where people are talking from vulnerable spaces. Um, and and I found we were able to do that in our on-the-ground classroom. And, and then I was concerned, how would we transfer this online? And, and it actually happened rather seamlessly because part of what I envision or believe about the purpose of teaching is about building relationships. So regardless if I'm teaching online or I'm teaching on the ground, we start by building relationships and by engaging in a reflective process about ourselves. And then we do that collectively as a group. So we're doing that and I, I teach this in the spring on the ground and I teach it a couple of semesters online and it, that looks very similar. It's just a little different timing mm-hmm. on those. Mm-hmm. Um, so not a, not a huge difference in my opinion. When you were talking about the uh, the discomfort and the the uncomfortable conversations that are part of that, you know, if you're reading through the chronicle, we're still getting we're still getting opinions flying back and forth on things like trigger warnings and and that sort of thing. One distinction that I I have found helpful, although I haven't really worked with it too much is helping students, well, well, first of all, applying to ourselves, but also helping students think through the difference between hurt and harm. Mm-hmm. So something might hurt kind of in the moment as you talk about discomfort, but that doesn't mean it's it's lasting harm. That's so does that, does that help? Does, do you, does that resonate with you at all? It does. I'm still I'm, working I'm, through it. So I'm actually I'm... gonna write that down <laughs> because I think that's a really great way to think about that. Um, yeah, so so things are, things do hurt, right? When when they when we hear some truth in something, yep. or when we are wrestling with something difficult, or we've had an experience. But but I see, I really like that distinction. But it doesn't always mean that's harmful. That that's right. a bad thing, right? Hurt. Um, you exercise and you hurt after it. Part <laughs> of that is about building new muscles, right, and strengthening mm-hmm. one's body. I would say that's true of some of these conversations. They're, yeah. They're difficult. They're hurt. They hurt. They're uncomfortable. Yeah. But we come out better on the other side, um, and we're strengthened in our understanding, and then in also in our empathy for one another and our care. Yeah. I've had the opportunity a couple of times to teach a Baylor continuing education course that is talk about meta. That is uh, actually teaching for the other. Uh, continuing education teachers so to help them think about teaching adults um, yes. you know and and we work a little bit through uh, andragogy yep. and and Malcolm Knowles so is that something that that is is you know I'm not in your world so I don't know if, if is that still the conversation that that you all have when you're working with working professionals is that a helpful yes. construct and let me just tell you this was a new concept to me when i started teaching online andragogy uh. right i've been raised in the theories of pedagogy because i was a k-12 teacher and i work with uh, teacher educators so actually we have a course called psychology of learning in our online program and it's premised again on andragogy and so i started to hear my fellow faculty members talking about this and um and principles of andragogy are not hugely different than than some of our pedagogical principles, but there's some real key distinctions that now inform my practice that I just did not um, have perhaps the name or the theoretical construct my own self to understand that. So yes, this is definitely a conversation we're having. And we're also teaching our students about it because they're also working with adult learners in many of their settings as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of the things that I find a little frustrating about the distinction for a college teacher is we're not really sure whether we're doing pedagogy or andragogy. Right, right. So this podcast is Professors Talk Pedagogy because I think that's just a word more people know. Sure. Um, but in some ways, we're teaching adults, but in other ways, they don't have the same kind of hallmark like motivations and and desire for direct application or 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 um, ability for direct application that you get in the andragogy yes. literature. So, uh, do you find yourself in that pinch too when you're teaching the the undergrads? Now that you've got kind of both theories rattling. Absolutely. I mean, I would say these adult learners I'm working with in the sort of the EDD and and even in our PhD program, and I think about them differently now than I did my undergraduate students. They just have different experiences in life. They have different struggles. They have different pressures on their, their lives. And to your point, they have, they have very different experiences in terms of the way that they see the world and what they've been exposed to. Neither is better than the other. It's just where they are. And so we have to, as, as professors, adapt our thinking to meet their needs. And so I was so excited to learn about andragogy. It just had not been in my world because it helped me think even more deeply about best practices for these adult learners um, and, and to better meet their needs. I so appreciated also you talking about helping students just feel, feel more comfortable with a lack of closure on conversations. We have at the ATL, we, you know, we do teaching observations and sometimes we enlist other faculty to, uh, to do an observation sort of on behalf of the ATL if, if that request comes to us. And I, I've begun to question um, the, the wisdom of one of the questions that we ask on there, which is how did, how did this class session end? And we give you know, just some kind of like nudges for the observer to like what kinds of things to look for. And in one of those, we say, you know, were the main points summarized? And, I, and I, I'm thinking to myself more and more like that doesn't always apply. And we need to be really careful about that that need. You know, it's a very you know kind of Western Enlightenment sort of need to go. Okay, where's the, how can I wrap this up in a neat bow and put all the distinctions in place and make sure that it's all clear? I mean, obviously there's 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 pedagogical value in summarizing you know what is supposed to be learned, but sometimes it's just a you know it's a feral cat <laughs> and you, and you just gotta let it do its thing, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the practices I do now that was, I would learn from a colleague who actually taught one of the courses on psychology of learning is this kind of reflective exercise at the end. And it's, it's something we use in K-12 schools, but it's, I'm using it a little bit different in these adult uh, settings. So I have them reflect on what do you now know? Like, what were your takeaways from this conversation? And then what are you still wondering? And we, we just leave it there. What are you still wondering? Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't tie it up at the end of class. Instead, those become talking points for the next conversation. Yeah. So it appeared to me, you guys, this is where you, you were at the end of last class. But, but you still, you had some unresolved things. Yeah. Let's talk about those. Let's see how we might use those to begin our conversation yeah. in the next class. That's been really helpful um, to see them. And also in an online space versus having them sort of all reflect out orally, this is also a written exercise that allows them to kind of uh, 
process themselves and then respond so that I can get a good sense of where the class is. As much as I love learning objectives, uh, I do wonder if sometimes we should also start talking about wondering objectives. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, like, because what we're trying to do is, is, you know, is, is help students think of knowledge as something that does unfold, that does, mm -hmm. that, that is moved forward or, or moved, maybe it's forward, but moved by the questions that we have. So things to continue to work on. And I think love about. that wondering <laughs> objectives. That's, I'm going to figure out. Patent, how to patent pending on that. Yes, there you go. Yes, copyright pending. <laughs> All right. Well, Brooke Blevins, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Our thanks again to Dr. Brooke Blevins for speaking with us today. In the show notes, you'll find links to the work of iEngage and a link to a starting point for those interested in andragogy, the theory of adult learning. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.